This week on Our Thing. They started this plot to kill the underboss, Tuffy DeLunan, and Savella knew about it. And then Savella started their own plot, just like we do to them, they did to each other. Ex-cop, lawyer, podcaster, and author extraordinaire, Gary Jenkins, shares his experience as an intelligence unit officer investigating the Kansas City mob. Stay tuned for the most entertaining hour in radio. This is Our Thing, with everyone's favorite ex-gangster, Welcome back to another episode and or addition to our thing on 1010 The King. I'm going to use my radio voice for this particular part of the show. And Bill is with me, Partners in Crime. Bill, I told you a story the other day. He thought that I should share it again. It was a story about how I ended up punching a cop in the face and got away with it, kind of. Yeah, I think it'll be a good story because we were just having a conversation and you go, hey, did I ever tell you about the time I punched a cop? And every time I think I've heard all of your stories, here comes another one. Here's another one. <laughs> so I think it's a good intro. It's a good story. So I was 16 years old. There's a girl wasn't my girlfriend yet who would become my girlfriend. We had a party. She moved from East Detroit the St. Clair Shores where I lived. And so she had two older brothers that were kind of tough guys. And but she was this little tiny thing, a little four foot 11, 90 pound girl. Anyways, one particular night, she had a big party and it got broken up. All these East Detroit kids and all my boys got in a big fight. All right, so no big deal. Now I start dating this girl a few months later and she decides she's gonna have another party. Of course, her brother's friends show up all my boys show up again who have this ongoing beef from the last time just a couple months earlier and her parents would go out bowling till like three in the morning and she'd have a full-blown like cake batch that's just how crazy it was there's a party with kids everywhere she'd be in so much trouble they clean up a little bit but parents would yell at her or they might go camping sometimes whatever the case this was in the middle of winter because there was a ton of snow and i'm in a basement drinking beer bud light or bush light probably bush light one interesting thing is one of my friends got her teeth knocked out right next to me. I was talking to her, the girl, and then I'm talking to her, and all of a sudden the guy next to me reaches back, wham, wham, hits this guy twice, real fast, bang, bang, punches him in the mouth twice, boom, knocks him out. And then a full-blown brawl breaks out after this, right? Half the people go outside, arguing, pushing, fighting, there's all these fighting, and stuff. but I since I'm dating the girl having a party, I stay in the house, and they could kick me out, you know, our brothers and all that stuff. Next thing you know, cops come in the house. There's still like 20, 30 people in the house. Cops come down in the basement. There's a bunch of cops in there and they're telling everybody leave, dump out your beer. Everybody leaves up your beer. So I'm cocky and I'm drunk and I'm walking by this cop that I know. I know him because he's the first cop I ever had police contact with because he pulled me over on my mini bike years before when I was probably seven, eight years old and he made me push my mini bike home. So I knew the guy. But at this point, it'd been like seven, eight years since that happened. But he looked exactly the same, just a little bit older. He was fat. And he had busted me and pulled me over before several times, you know, and kind of, he knew who I was. They all knew who I was, the cops. So I'm walking out of the basement, I got a beer, and he stops me, he goes, where are you going with that, Limbloom? I said, with what? He's like, that beer. I said, I'm drinking it. I'm 16, 17 years old, probably 17. I was 17, by He's like, dump it out. And there was a garbage can right there. And he's, I took one more swig from it. And then I threw it in the garbage. And I go upstairs. There was more pushing and chaos and fighting and arguing and all kinds of out front. There's more cops, people everywhere. 
I go out there and they're arresting her brothers because her brothers are telling the cops, get the F off my property, get off my property, get off my property. This is back in a time and era when if you got in cops' faces, you got stomped out or arrested. You couldn't just tell a cop, get the F off my property. You know, what's your badge number? I can't, you know, you remember that time, Bill. Yeah, that's the era I grew up in. Yeah, they'll, they'll stomp you. Yeah, you, you, you get in a cop's face and say, get off my property. You get a nightstick to the side of the head and a bunch of cops kicking your ass. Right. I was nice many times and still got the stick. Yeah, me too. So this particular night, I don't really care about her brothers because, in my opinion, they're both bags. You know, the other one, Matt, was he was okay. He wasn't a total bag. He could have been, but he wasn't. But all of a sudden, I turn around, I look, and they got my girlfriend in cuffs behind her back. The little girl, and they're cuffing her. So I snap. I'm keep in mind, I'm drunk. I'm full blown drunk at this time. It's not like I'm buzzed. I'm drunk. Probably drink ten beers. So I'm stupid, smashed. Right, and this is seventeen year old hormonal drunk. Yeah, this is a seventeen year old hormonal puberty drunk Al. So I run up on the cops, I like grab her and I start pulling her away. Like, what the F are you doing arresting a little girl? I'm like, it's her brother's party, you She didn't do nothing, she's lives here. And then she's telling me, let me go. And the cops say, let her go or you're going to jail. And at that point, there's like four cops kind of around in a circle. I do flinch at them and I jump in their face. I say, what are you gonna arrest me for, huh? And I flinch them. Next thing I'll crack, I see stars. I don't know if you hit me with a flashlight, like a mag light, or the nightstick, or a pistol. I don't know. I just saw stars, boom, and I go down. A couple of them started like kicking snow in my face. Going, hey, tough guy, that's what they're saying. Get up, tough guy. So I get up, I try to get away from them, and they grab me by my shirt, and I rip out of the shirt, trying to get away, and I, I'm flailing, and I, I punch one of them in the face. In my report, I said I was flailing and it was an accident, but flat out, I wound up with everything I got to try and hit this dude. It just, but it was a weird punch, because it wasn't like a straight punch. I came from the back, hit him right in the side of the head, knocks him down. I take off running. Cops chase after me. I'm running through the backyards for like, I don't know, eight or ten houses. The cops go flying down the street in their car, pull up in the drive. They're trying to get me. These cops everywhere. I can hear their belts and their flashlights and keys. They're going, geez, and the lights are flashing everywhere. And I'm just hurling fence, hurling fence, hurling fence. I get about ten houses away, I lose them. So just as I jump the fence, because it had been about three, four, five minutes since I punched the cop in the face, and there was all those kids in front of the house when I did it. There's probably 30 to 50 kids in the street milling about, watching the arrests, watching the fighting. Cops are trying to break everybody up. So one of my friends, this kid named Matt Gregory, he was like a burnout dude. I'm trying to get away from these cops, and I see Carcom on the block, and I see it's Matt Gregory. He's in this little like Chevy Citation, and it's filled with people. And there's a girl in the front seat. So I run out in the middle of the street, and I like make him stop. So he almost hits me. I jump. I said, "Let me in, let me in." He goes, "Man, hell no, man! I just saw you punch a cop, man! Hell no!" He starts to leave. So I dive through the window and like land in this girl's lap. And I just go drive, 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 and I'm hiding down. And of course, at that point, he had no choice. And the people in the back seat were my boys, Brian and, and, and Mark. They're laughing. It's the crazy mother ever. And so I get away. Might have been the next day, or it could have even been a couple days. But I had a knock on the door and I look outside and there's two cops. And of course I know what it's for, probably, you know. Cops come and they're like, we need to take you down to the station for questioning regarding an assault on a police officer. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Assaulting a police officer? I didn't assault no police They assaulted me. What are you talking about? They hit me with a freaking mag light, knocked me out, started kicking me in the face. When I got up and run, I got up and flailed and shoved them back and took off running. I got 30 witnesses, 30 witnesses that are going to testify to that. So you sure you want to arrest me? They were detectives. So they were kind of like, so so that what happened and what happened? 
And I said, yeah. The cop hit me with a flashlight or a nightstick, knocked me out, and then started kicking me on the ground. I jumped up and they grabbed me. I tried to get away and I kind of ripped out of my shirt and took off running. And I had 30 people saw the whole thing. And they're all going to show up to court. They're all going to testify to that. You're going to have one cop saying I hit him and 30 people saying that they knocked me out. They start looking at each other and they're like, oh, they get this little notepad out and they're writing notes and stuff. It's on my porch. They were after like 10 minutes telling my story. Like, well, I guess we're going to go uh, investigate this, question the officer, hear his side of the story. If there's many more, we'll be in touch. I'm like, yeah, well, me too. I'm going to make sure I talk to my lawyer. So when I sue you, mother I said, I'm going to give a nice fat paycheck. And so they left. I guess I was ahead of my time, Bill. I was the first one to be woke. I was woke up. I, I, I said, <laughs> oh, wise guy, eh? Well, you know what that means? Another round of street picks with Bill Crooks and Partners in Crime. Tell us what's the news on the street today, Bill Crooks. Well, this one's a little unique. This story is about hackers. And when we think of hackers, most of us probably think of nerdy little guys in their mom's basement stealing credit card info and buying the complete Harry Potter series on a working man's dime. Or we may think of something more sinister like Chinese intelligence, saboteurs gearing up to disable our power grids and reduce us all to cannibalism. <laughs> but these are Mexican hackers, and their weapons of choice aren't laptops or iPads. They're machetes, chainsaws, and the like. Oh, those kind of hackers. Yes. If you'll recall, last July, a violent drug cartel was suspected of hacking a human leg clean off. And leaving it to hang from a pedestrian bridge just west of Mexico City, the torso was on display in the street below, along with a handwritten message signed by the familia Michoacana Cartel. Other parts of the bodies were found hacked up in other neighborhoods, also with handwritten drug cartel signs in the vicinity. Back in 2022, the hacked-off heads of six men were discovered on top of a Volkswagen in southern Mexico, a requisite warning sign strung from two trees on the scene. Pretty gruesome stuff, but folks, you ain't seen nothing yet. What's been described as an undetermined number of hacked-up bodies have been found in two vehicles abandoned on a bridge in Mexico's Gulf Coast state of Veracruz. A banner left on one of the vehicles included an apparent warning, a message from the Jalista New Generation cartel. This time, the body parts were not just hacked, they were packed into styrofoam coolers aboard two trucks. According to CBS, a printed banner left on the side of one truck containing some of the remains suggested the victims might be Guatemalans. Investigators are performing laboratory tests to determine the number Ooh. of victims. The Veracruz State Interior Department said the killings appeared to involve a settling of scores between gangs. A faction of the now-splintered Gulf Cartel is battling the Jalisco for turf in the northern part of Veracruz, including nearby cities like uh, Poza Rica. Veracruz had been one of Mexico's most violent states since the good old days, when the old Zetas cartels was fighting rivals there, and it continues to see killings linked to the Gulf Cartel and other gangs. The state has one of the country's most popular clandestine body dumping grounds, a nice place for the cartels to dispose of their victims. Discoveries of mutilated bodies dumped in public or hung from bridges with menacing messages have increased in Mexico in recent years as criminal gangs seek to intimidate their rivals. Will it work? Well, it would work on me. Anyway, next time you're about to complain that you got hacked on Facebook, maybe you should count yourself uh, as one of the lucky ones. That's your street beats. Oh, my God. It's funny. It's not funny. There's nothing funny about that. It's sickening. and It's not funny, but I do my best to make it funny. Oh, my goodness, man. Something 
it's something's wrong, man. Those people are devolving, man. Like they're going back into time to when, you know, you think about the Vikings in the, you know, the Scottish Highlanders and things like that, who are hack people apart, you know, and I guess the Romans did Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, but they were doing it in like battle, honorable battles over resources and land and yada, yada, yada. And I guess to them, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, it is. And it's a little bit to impress your friends. Right? Exactly. They're doing it to show people around them, look, at I'm a sociopath. I'll hack your head off and it won't bother me at all. You know, there's characters in my new book, Snowman Chronicles, that are like that. They're, something like that happens. But it's one thing to go charging into battle with a shield and a sword and hack some people apart to fight for your land, your, your family, whatever. It's another thing to say, hey, listen, I'm going to kill these guys just to show his boys that, you know, don't mess with me. You know, I, the coke plug comes to me, or the dope comes to me, or that cop comes to me, or the whatever it is. These guys are savages, bro. Savages. You're right. And in Mexico, it's getting harder and harder to make an impression. And by the way, Vera Cruz is very close to a certain friend of ours who thinks he's safe. Yeah, he's not safe. It's just north he's of him. Safe. It's going to creep up and he's going to learn the hard way. Where's that gold at, bro? Where's that gold? Singapore, <laughs> which I also don't understand. That'll be his last words. Where's that gold, bro? He's like, Singapore. Then you have no reason to be alive then. Quack. I hope not. I hope. That's your next book, me and you trying to get the gold from Singapore. It's funny. I was just thinking about another book that I could write based on some of this stuff. I was thinking about, as you were saying that, writing a book told through the eyes of a cop in Mexico. And he has the struggle with, dude, does he become corrupted or does he stay clean? Or maybe he stays clean and pretends he's corrupted and becomes one of them, but all along he's like a double agent, like a Greg Scarpa. Oh, yeah, the cost of being clean is high. It's, it's life. Yeah, you can't be clean. No. I mean, I guess some, there are some clean cops that are legit in Mexico, but... They don't last very long. Well, that's the thing. If you're going to be clean, you just got to be like, okay, I'm doing this for the glory of God. Yeah. And your, your days are your numbered. Your days are numbered. Just exactly. Not but God bless the people that do it. I'm sure they... they yeah, yeah. Well, they don't last very long. No, they're few and far Yeah, you're better off just taking the money and looking the other way. It's only dope. What, if Americans want to get high on dope and live in the streets, <laughs> that's on them. I'll take this 10000 bucks a week to look the other way or help the guys get dope across the border or whatever. All right, Bill. So I guess we got to take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll bring our first guest of the night on. So God bless. Stay tuned on 1010 The King, our thing. Hey, have you checked out our thing apparel? It's the original gangster clothing brand that lets you represent where you live, featuring t-shirts, hoodies, vintage tracksuits, and more. Our Thing Apparel allows you to customize your clothing for your city or state. And now we're proud to launch our Atlanta line of urban casual wear. Check out OurThingApparel.com and use the promo code 1010 when checking out to get 10% off your total order. Make our thing your thing. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you are ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now. 
with a free call. 800-852-1736. 800-852-1736. That's 800-852-1736. Now you can get generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steel Man Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50-pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus. 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. That's 800-870-3609. What's up, Atlanta? It's Bill Crooks from Earth Thing Radio Show. Gunner and I love showcasing creative talent regardless of the medium. That's why we're really excited about Atlanta Stitchworks Custom Upholstery. It's Georgia's premier custom shop for all your interior needs. Serving you with 16 years of experience and quality, they truly are second to none. My good friend Fernando Moreno and team will help you bring your dreams and ideas to reality. They specialize in handmade interiors for hot rods, low riders, cars, trucks, baggers, choppers, and of course, marine. They'll even handle your audio and window tinting. Any material, any design, anything you want. Tailor made for you at Atlanta Stitchworks. For free estimates, please call 404 503 3949. 404 503 3949. That's 404 503 3949. Or if you're shy, just email Atlanta Stitchworks at gmail.com. They'll take great care of you. Just tell them Bill and Gunner sent you. On February 4th, The Minds of Madness is set to release an investigative four part series centered on a cold case from nearly four decades ago. At first, it was just, my mom's gone. And then it became, you know, your mom was taken by a Batman. They found video of him killing women. If you'd ever watched any uh, episodes of Breaking Bad, that's exactly what you would see. He buried these 11 women and kept going out there. He made a road going out there. You got this dude saying, hey, I'm going to show your family these pictures. And, like, he's secretly taping her. The cops don't care. We're nothing to them. Dumped her like a piece of garbage, you know? I don't see anything that screams there's two people doing this. I never thought anything was going to come of this case. Ever. Listen to the Minds of Madness series, Who Killed Jennifer, starting February 4th, wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? What's up? Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. Now I'd like to welcome to the show an old friend, Gary Jenkins. He's the host of Gangland Wire. And he was one of the first interviews that I did when I got out of prison yeah. and kind of entered this space. And I know I was one of his first ones. He also is the author of a book. We'll get into that, too. Very neat guys. Started off as a police officer, I believe. Right, Gary? Right. Yes, I was. 25 years. Yeah. Then he decided, I'm going to just keep getting my education and I'm going to become a lawyer and eventually became a prosecutor. And then he got into the whole mafia space, Kansas City mafia, and it just kind of sprouted from there. He got involved in this stuff. So quickly, tell us where you're from, Gary, and then how you ended up getting into this genre, the mafia. (laughs) Well, Gunner, I started out in Kansas City. I was with the Kansas City Police Department, the intelligence unit. We worked a mob about half my career. I was 25 years. I spent 14 or so working on the intelligence unit. And primarily we worked the mob here in the city and worked through a couple of mob wars and the whole skimming from Las Vegas investigation from this side. And just finally retired and went to law school because I'd never lived up to my potential when I was a young kid. When when I was 19 or 20, I was going to do it my way. (laughs) 
And over the next 30 years, I got my undergrad degree and then I went to law school. So how old were you when you got your law degree? That's crazy. Uh, see, I was uh, 51 when I retired after 25 years. And so it takes three years to get your law degree. So I was 54 years old. Nice. Well done. That must have been kind of funny. Yeah. Going to class with a bunch of kids. <laughs> yeah, I was about the oldest one there. <laughs> so when you're in intelligence for the Kansas City mob, what does that look like? Are you listening to wiretaps? How are you gathering this intel? No, I was local police, you know, Kansas City police and the FBI. They're the only ones that could get wiretaps at that point in time. And what we did is is we'd go out. We knew who the guys were and we try to develop sources. We'd follow them around a little bit. See if they went to a business and you'd go do research on that business. Maybe if it looked like it was a hot spot where other mob guys would show up, you'd sit back and get tags and see who they were and see what kind of business it was. They had a night shift, see where they were going at night, what clubs they were hanging out at and write down tag numbers there. Maybe go in and sit and watch them, see who they were talking to and where they were sitting when they were talking and, and just everything you could around the edge. And, and like I said, try to develop informants and people that worked in some of these businesses so they could tell us what was going on in that business possibly and, okay. and just write reports, write reports, write reports, and then send all those to the FBI primarily. Then okay. those reports would end up being probable cause to help them get wiretaps or maybe a hidden microphone because that's always part of it. That's why these guys will try to find a cool spot to talk someplace that didn't have a history to it because they know that once you get a history being a mob place and that adds to the affidavit and the, the um, probable cause. So yeah, that's what it looked like. Got to wear T-shirts and blue jeans and drive slick cars and old used rental cars or buy used rental cars. And not so bad. That's not bad. Really a game of patience, though. Just patience yeah. and persistence. Yeah, you had to have imagination and patience. You had to be able to sit and watch and wait and sit and watch and wait. It's funny you bring this up because just today, a guy messaged me on Facebook and said, hey, listen, your grandpa used to arrange meetings, my grandpa Peter Toko, at his grandfather's hardware store on Seven Mile and Gratiot. And I said, you sure it was my grandpa? And he's like, yeah, I remember him. And I said on the picture, it was like he'd make meetings for Tony Giacalone and other people there. And he's like, my grandpa didn't really have a choice. Well, it made me think about how many times was I on the radar? You know what I'm saying? Where I went to a business or I went and met somebody. I used to meet Tony Giacalone at Dimitri's all the time. He was always super nervous. He was always looking out the window and back to the thing, looking at all the cars and stuff. Another place called Mr. Paul's, which they ended up finding out was tag wired. And I remember going in there and if you go in there to talk and they go in the bathroom because according to them, the law couldn't wiretap a bathroom, according to them. So we you go in the bathroom and talk business. And so that's where I always did business. They'd give a guy money or, yeah. or get orders from a guy. It was always like, you did that same thing. So what are some of the most remarkable things that you saw and encountered when trailing the mob all those years? Well, there was nothing very exciting about this. It's kind of, you know, you see it on TV. There's nothing exciting about it. Nothing really went down in front of us, except, you know, they tried a couple of times. We had this mob war going on between the uh, kind of the upstart Spiro brothers, Carl, Mike and Joe and the Savella family, Nick and Carl Savella, his brother, Nick Savella is our boss. And Tuffy DeLuna was the underboss. And then there was a couple of three other guys that were close people who were really their, their guys they would take with them if they needed to do a hit. So these Spiro brothers had made some incursions, had robbed one of their main bookies. They got him for $10,000 and, and they gathered in enough information. We know that they gathered enough information to know that the guy that robbed the Savella bookie did it for the Spiro brothers because he was part of this little group that uh, Carl Spiro, the main one, was putting together. 
and he was telling people, I even interviewed a guy and he said, oh yeah, I said, Carl said, we're moving in on those Savelas, you know, you want to come with us. He was taking in non-Italians and, and those guys will break like a cheap shotgun. So yeah. if we knew about it, Nick Savella and Carl DeLuna and Carl Savella and all those guys, they knew what they were doing too. And they started this plot to kill the underboss, Tuffy DeLuna, and Savella knew about it. And then Savella started their own plots and they were starting to uh, stalk them, driving around, trying to find out where they were, just like we do to them. They did to each other. Yeah. So we know they're after Carl Spiro, particularly. He's sitting in this one tavern that he always hung out at. It was kind of his place. Savella's never went in there. And he's in there by himself one afternoon and we're just sitting down the street. And all of a sudden... We look up and we see this car go by uh, about a block from where we were and go down a side street right next to the, the Virginia Tavern. We said, heck, that's Joe Ragusa, I think. We've sitting there smoking and joking. We weren't really spread out like we should be, gotten bored. But we just happened to see him. So we spread out. We couldn't find Joe. Couldn't find his car anywhere. We got back together at the same spot where he could see this one side street. Pretty soon another car comes by and there's three people in it. It's like, and just something about that car was wrong. I can't explain it. There's just something about all three of us said, hey, look at that. Who is that? And it just didn't feel right. So we spread out again. We're driving around looking for this car. And I went down past the Virginian and took a right. And I look at my rearview mirror and there's this car right behind me. It's just a nondescript Chevrolet of some kind. There's three heads in it. I said, oh, interesting. So they follow along behind me about two blocks and I take a right. They take a right. So I'm going south on Paseo. They're right behind me and I've got the walkie talkie. Of course, it's down in my lap so they can't see it. And I'm telling the other guys, you know, they're behind me. So one of them's got a regular police radio. He's frantically trying to get the dispatcher to get us a uniform car over there to stop them, do a regular car check yeah. because this ain't the movies we don't try to run them off the road just on a, an off chance it might be something so we keep going about two blocks south and they're still behind me and i pull up to 12th and paseo and they're in the left lane and i'm in the right lane you know you can turn left out of the left lane and to be cool i'd have to go straight ahead and i just as the light turned i started to go ahead slowly and i'm telling those guys you know, they're going to be going either south on paseo or west on 12th street east on 12th street and about that time, I just kind of glanced over and there's Tuffy Luna sitting in the passenger seat. And he gives me about a half a grand. And since our eyes met, when they turned, I mean, that guy, whoever was driving, I think it was Joe Ragusa, he laid into that. I mean, he laid into it and and flew off. And we never did catch back up with them. Yeah. Uniform cars, you know, they got there about 10 minutes later, uh, as usual. But so that was, yeah. you know, that was kind of exciting. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was always a, during that time, it was always this thing about we're watching. When do you make a move? If it looks like something's going down. When do you make a move and how do you make a move? And we're in T-shirts and blue jeans. So, you know, we, yeah. they could shoot us and say, I don't know who somebody's running up there yeah. with a gun, you know. And so it's uh, it, it was a tough deal. And we did this for months and months and months. And the Sabellas ended up killing all those Sparrow brothers. Did they? Oh, they ended up getting them all. Yeah, they got them all. They had to use bombs See, because they couldn't isolate them. They couldn't get anybody close to them. And and they talked about using a sniper rifle at this one guy's house, and they'd have to walk and run across some fields to get close to it because he lived in the country. And, and, and on the wiretap, Nick Savella says, we don't have anybody that can run across any fields and make a shot like that. And, and that's why they ended up getting them with bombs, remote control detonated bombs. Wow, that's crazy. So what year was this? It was 1978. 
79. Yeah. And at the same time, the Bureau's up on the skimming wiretaps and bugs. They brought in about 20 extra agents and a couple of extra pilots and airplanes, and, and they were all over the skim. We ended up, we helped them with some skim surveillance, trying to spot and find payphones that they were using. But once they got on the phones, then that we everybody backed off, just sit back and wait because you you know you just listen. You just get one guy close by, and then he can call back in the wire room. And said, "Hey, Tuffy just pulled in down here at the hotel." Then they just get on the pay phones at this hotel he was using and wait till he picks up the phone and listen. And and if it's him, you know, then they can continue to listen and start recording. And so we were pulled off of that and just worked this little uh, war that was going on at the time. It was it was a crazy time in Kansas City, I'll tell you what. So who was orchestrating the bombs? Did they have to bring that in from Sicily or something, or did they have the Vietnam guys or what? You know, I know how the, the Spiros had a bomb built, and this is kind of how it would have worked for the Savellas, because we know exactly how this worked, because we had people tell us about it. They had a guy, uh, like a career criminal, who knew one of the Spiro brothers, and he knew a guy down in Arkansas who had stolen a case of dynamite from a construction site. So Carl Spiro says, hey, I, you know, I'll buy that. So he brings it up. They hide it out. Then they know another guy. And this would probably be the same guy that the Savellas would use, a professional criminal who was really good with electronics. And Carl Spiro said, hey, get Bobby Jean Jones and have him build us a remote control detonating device. He used one of these model airplane controllers as a uh, like a plunger kind of a thing. And they, uh, you know, rigged up the whole remote control detonating device. And and that's how they put it together. They didn't really have to go out of town, particularly. You know, they, they they had people. Locally. That's good. But I just know Sicilians had these zips that were adept yeah. at blowing people up. That's their thing. Yeah. <laughs> we got our own homegrown people. Kansas City does not go outside. I'll tell you right now. They do not use outside people. I heard Nick say that on the phone. We don't want any outsiders in here. We'll take care of this. That Detroit. Detroit was the same way. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I had a mob guy pay me to bomb a nightclub. Wasn't sophisticated. I made the bomb. It was just a pipe bomb. And uh, I took a brick, threw it through the window, threw the bomb through the window and blew it up. It was all in the papers and stuff. But the irony is I got busted with two pipe bombs before I did that. And the guy's like, just, he's got to give me 3000 bucks. So I had to do it. Like I already yeah. spent the money. So I, even though I got busted with the pipe bomb, <laughs> yeah, I got pulled over in a fluke chance. And I'm all high with my boys, got music bumping, tin windows. They pulled me over tin of windows. They say license and registration. I reach over to grab the license registration out the glove box, open the glove box, and there's two pipe bombs sitting there. They grab their gun, <laughs> get out of there. I don't freak out. I'm like, oh. I ended up going to jail for a couple of weeks, bonding out, yada, yada, yada. But I still got <laughs> the guy gave me three grand. So I still had to do it. So now I got to make some more pipe bombs and then go and went and did it. But uh, I get it. You know what I'm saying? It's, but pipe bombs, like Bill said, the Sicilians are the ones who, who like to use them bombs. I know in Cleveland, the whole war in Cleveland for a while, they, yeah. they were blowing up everything. Yeah, bananas were good for blowing things up. Yeah, here's why they have to use bombs because there's such an out and out war going on that you yeah. can't get somebody to set them down anywhere. And yeah. nobody used sniper rifles. They have run into joints. They did that twice here, ran into a joint and just shot the guys and ran out. Now, they did do that a couple of times with the bomb so much slicker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it, the bomb opens up all these things that could go wrong. You know, the yeah. wrong guy, you hit civilians, you kill a kid. Yeah, bystander. Bombs are just, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. ugly business. I was the one always under the belief, God, all these things remind me of stories, but I was almost involved in a hit that involved a, a sniper rifle. I was leading the guy into the woods. We were going squirrel hunting, target shooting, and I was supposed to lead this guy to the slaughter. But long story short, this DNR officer pulled up right when we pulled up, 
and I had a warrant and I had to pay the money. And anyways, there's a record of me being there. So we had to abort the whole hit. The only time I was ever involved in potential murder, uh, like totally involved. But I, I always used to think a sniper rifle would be the way to go. Like, you know what I'm saying? If you just had a, like a black van or a white van with like those tinted windows and you just put like a, a black curtain screen over it, you could sit in the car with a sniper rifle and drive by and you could hit somebody from 200 yards, 300 yards away. Just saying, that's probably. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's like the D.C. murders, right? That's what was going on. Minus the white van. I think it was a station wagon, but same thing. They'd actually caught uh, Gagliano, Joe Gagliano down in New Orleans in a van exactly like that. And that was his plan. That's crazy. (laughs) So so tell us about we only have so much time. We could sit here for hours. By the way, let's give this guy the whole show. (laughs) Because I've already got like the first segment and then we'll promo his stuff the second. That's cool. (laughs) Okay. well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Bill, I think we have to take a quick break. Stay tuned on 1010 The King. It's our thing. Matthew was a tax collector in Roman-occupied Galilee. Despite his comfortable life, he was scorned and shunned by his fellow Judeans. To them, Matthew was a traitor who lined Rome's coffers and his own at the expense of the people. Simon was a zealot, loyal to God, the Judean people, and their traditions. Not content to see God's people suffering, Simon was ready and willing to take up arms to free his homeland from Rome's oppression and pagan influence. Their paths had crossed before. Now a Nazarene teacher has arrived in Capernaum with new ideas and a new purpose that challenges both their worldviews in unexpected ways. Coin and Dagger, a biblical novel by Jack Filer, is available on Amazon. If you love The Chosen, you'll also love this special novel that gives us a colorful look at these two disciples of Christ, Matthew the Tax Collector and Simon the Zealot. Look for Coin and Dagger, a biblical novel by Jack Filer, available in both paperback and Kindle ebook. Let me tell you a story about Bill. Bill was a normal guy in his 50s. He had back surgery about two years ago. Bill was in a lot of pain. He dealt with his pain by taking the Percocets his doctor prescribed for him. Bill took more and more and more of them to help with the pain until one day the prescriptions weren't enough to get rid of Bill's pain. Then one day Bill found someone to help him get rid of the pain with illegal drugs he didn't need a prescription for. Fast forward to today. Bill lost his job and his family. The only thing he does have is his drug dealer. If you know Bill's story and you don't want to end up like Bill, call the Detox and Treatment Helpline right now to get away and get treatment. 800-762-6158. That's 800-762-6158. Has someone in your family lost a job recently? and now you can't afford your mortgage payment? Or do you have a rental property and your tenants aren't paying you? We can come to the rescue and pay you cash for your home immediately. Yes, sell your home and get cash all over the phone without dealing with real estate agents or having to waste time showing your home to lukewarm buyers. You don't need to lose your house to foreclosure. If you have equity in your home, we'll buy your home and give you cash within days, all in a simple over-the-phone and virtual process. Call now before your situation gets worse. Sell a home you can't afford or just need anymore and get the cash you need today. Call this number now. 800-950-3143. 800-950-3143. 
800-950-3143. That's 800-950-3143. Paid for by Want to Sell. Matt and Tangi Riley, two Yale honor students in a CIA-run secret underground facility known as the Global Observation Defense, or the GOD. The CIA attempts to block their intelligence from the NSA, who track down Matt and Tangi to assess the contents of the complex with the intent to destroy it. Tasked with developing a mind control process, their program is extremely secretive, and an unlikely group seeks to find out more. The couple is abducted by extraterrestrials who plant a spy chip in Matt to track the events unfolding within the complex. Even as the spies already inside the God facility have a plan to eliminate anyone who stands in the way of delivering the mind control program to their respective countries. Matt is agnostic. Tangi is a devout Christian. Their beliefs will be challenged. Their bodies will be tested. And no one knows what will happen next. In an American Abduction, the latest novel by James A. Johnson. You can find the book on Amazon or visit jjsnovels.com to learn more. An American Abduction. Is it fiction or is it happening? Writing a book can be fulfilling and rewarding, but often the biggest challenge is getting it published. Yet, self-publishing for print, ebook, and audiobook can be a daunting process. And then you have to market and sell it. White Pine Publishing and Consultants can help you with all of that and more. We're not a traditional publisher. We're a consulting and services company that assists you with all aspects of self-publishing your book, including ghostwriting, coaching, editing, proofing, formatting, marketing and sales, and even web design. Visit our website at whitepinepublishing.com to learn more about our services and get in touch. With White Pine's integrity, industry knowledge, and experience, you can let us do all the hard work so that you don't have to. Check out all of our self-publishing services, pricing, and author testimonials at whitepinepublishing.com. The old way of living with diabetes is a pain. You've got to remember to do your testing and always need to stick your fingers to test your blood sugar. The new way to live your life with diabetes is with a continuous glucose monitor. Apply a discrete sensor on your body, and it continuously monitors your glucose levels, helping you spend more time in range and freeing you from painful finger sticks. If you are living with type 1 or type 2 diabetes and you use insulin or have had hypoglycemic events, you might be eligible for a CGM through your insurance benefits. U.S. Med partners with over 500 private insurance companies and Medicare. We offer free shipping, 90-day supplies, and we bill your insurance. Call us today for a free benefits check. 800-235-2760. 800-235-2760. That's 800-235-2760. What's up? Welcome back to our thing on 1010 The King. It was Gary Jenkins. He's the host of Gangland Wire. Yeah. So I want to talk about the skim and basically how that got busted and also your book, how that all happened. But, you know, Detroit, a lot of people don't know this. You know, they know about the mob was busted with the skim in Vegas. But Detroit was the yeah. first casino, I believe, to get busted with Tony Zarelli. was the first one to get busted for the Frontier. I think it was the Stardust or Sands. I can't remember. There was a total of four of them. But he got caught on a wire. And if I remember correctly, 
I think he was bragging to somebody in Kansas City mm. about how he got $4 million. He's like, I got $4 million out of this in these casinos. And he was talking to a Kansas City guy. And that Kansas City guy was wired. And they, they end up getting him. And he ends up going to prison. And this really made him look bad because his father, I'm sure you know this, Gary, but his father, Uno Zarelli, was like the godfather of Detroit. He was a, a very big time guy. He was on a commission. He was a commission like moderator. This guy's a big deal. So his son gets busted on a mic talking trash and gets the whole casino, them, them all busted. He ends up only getting four years in prison. But keep in mind, at the time, he was in line to be the next boss. In fact, he had been dubbed the new boss, acting boss. So the godfather, semi-retired, went to Miami and said to his son, you're the new acting boss. But then he gets busted with this casino stuff and goes to prison. And what his father does next is really unorthodox and crazy. He says, you're no longer the boss. Your cousin's now the boss. Your cousin Jack Toko is going to be the boss. And, of course, the son was unbelievable, out of his skin. With He's like, are you kidding me? You're going to name my cousin? And he says, well, what am I? He said, that's up to the boss. You know, whatever he decides is what, what he decides. I respect him. And Jack Toko had gone to college and got a business degree, super smart, wasn't stupid. So, basically, Jack Toko had a respect for the Don godfather. He named his son the underboss. So he named Tony Zarelli the underboss. But after that, they never got along. They were never friends again. They weren't tight. They beefed out for the next 30 years. They they almost got in fights when they were like 70, 80 years old. They almost got in fights with each other. Yeah, like fisticuffs. 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 I heard stories. And and nobody liked Tony Zarelli. They thought he was a dunce. And I guess that's probably why. And then the funny thing about him is he had a crew of guys that they were all kind of dunces. I knew some of them. I knew one of them. I knew one of the guys. Pretty good. My friend Frank, who died last year. But um, he was a dunce, and his crew were dunces. And Nove Toko was the only made guy to ever rat in Detroit history ever. He was one of Zarelli's crew. So he had this, like, subset mafia faction that didn't live in the Gross Point where I was from. I knew the guys in Gross Point. They lived out in Clinton Township, and they all lived in the same area. What the irony is that they were my grandfather's first cousins. So the guys that were kind of the opposed Tokos who lived out in Clinton Township, is the guy Paul Toko was my grandfather's first cousin. So my grandfather was like related to both sides, but they one was second cousin, one was third cousin. Anyways, but it all stemmed from the casino. So go back to casinos with Kansas City. How did that all happen and come crumbling down? In a way, it was a fluke. I was talking about this mob war that was going on. Mm-hmm. So the Bureau, when there's a lot of heat when you got bodies dropping all over the place. There's a lot of heat right. and they'll put a lot of energy into it and they'll, they'll kind of stretch things to, to try to get some kind of information you can always go as a law enforcement side you can always go a little bit further if there's murders involved you can always take a few more risks and and so they were really pushing and they got this little hidden microphone inside this joint called the villa capri which in the movie casino they show it in a like a vent in a little corner store but that's not where it was it was in this little joint called the villa capri which that's one thing we did we'd drive by there for the last several years before this and see their license plates there go in and drink some beer and you'd see them sitting back at the same table all the time and the bureau put a hidden microphone back in this particular table area. Probably had put more than one. I wasn't part of the installation. They bring people in to do that. And so they start listening as uh, the agent, friend of mine's a case agent on that. He said, you know, I never got so sick of hearing staying alive on a jute box in my life. <laughs> listening to those tapes. <laughs> but. Finally, one night, one June night, one hot June night, early in June, or I think it was the middle of June, 
they hear something about the Teamsters and they hear something about, are we in on that with them? They hear something about $25 million. They hear something about Jay Brown. They hear them talking about lefty. I think they heard the word stardust. They hear a guy called the brain or the genius. And so, you know, it's like, dang, there's, you know, they're, they're talking about Las Vegas. It didn't take them long to figure out that the genius was Alan Glick, who owned the stardust, the yeah. Hacienda, the Fremont and the uh, Marina, uh, the four casinos for his corporation. And they figured out that and they said, mentioned the name Jay Brown. Well, Jay Brown was the corporate counsel for them and also uh, been a law partner of Oscar Goodman. And was also really close to the Harry Reid, who was the chairman of the Gaming Commission. So, you know, you start gathering those kind of little tidbits and, and you keep listening for that kind of stuff for the next week or two. They are listening hard for something like that. And they never talked about any kind of murder plans. They talked about those other places, but they never talked about them there. And after that one conversation, Tuffy DeLuna, the underboss, was talking to Carl Savella, the boss's brother, about Vegas and cashing a check out there. And, you know, it's kind of semi-coded and then he's talking about his guy out there he said i got to get to a phone well there was a pay phone right there and he didn't go to that pay phone he left bureau deduces that he's got a phone he's going to find a phone or he's already got one he's got to go to a phone for some kind of high level conversation that's going to be about las vegas so man you talk about a full court press that's when they brought so many agents in and the extra airplane and another pilot so they wouldn't run out of gas like they did out in las vegas and land on the golf course and so we all got drafted in and man we all had fbi walkie-talkies and cars and and we were all over tuffy de luna like a cheap suit i mean we followed him everywhere and he was was tail conscious as hell he would stop and look for that airplane he'd drive into the airport the old airport downtown he'd drive into the flight pattern come back out the other end real fast finally they set him down at this hotel it was right at interstate i-435 right at interstate and basically a, it wasn't anything else around there but this hotel some gas station a truck stop and a bunch of warehouses but they got him into that hotel and and get him in there again then somebody goes in, they see him walk back to this bank of payphones. So then you just back off and you wait and they put a wire on those payphones and it was like gold. That Joe Agosto, who was their mole out in Las Vegas, who actually worked at the TROP because, see, you got to understand there's two streams of skim coming in from Las Vegas. There's one from the Tropicana, which was 40 grand a month. There was one from the Stardust and those other three casinos that went to Chicago and the Tropicana came to Kansas City because Nick Savella developed that structure, that skimming operation in Tropicana without the help of the Teamsters loan, without the help of Chicago or Milwaukee or Cleveland. He did it all on his own. He didn't have to share it. He did share money with IUPA. Now, is this after Detroit? Yeah, this is after. Yeah. Matter of fact, you know, I was going to tell you this. I'm glad you mentioned that. During one of these phone calls, Joe Gusto is telling Tuffy, well, by this point in time, Tuffy has gone out and told Alan Glick, threatened his children and his wife and said, you've got to sell the casinos and we want you out of there. And so he's starting to try to sell those casinos. And the Kansas City wants their package, their people to buy the Stardust to add that to their portfolio. 
And Joe Augusto is telling people that. And Lefty Rosenthal is trying to squash that because he doesn't want that to happen. He wants to stay in control. He didn't want Kansas City being controlled. He was more of a Chicago guy. And he was supposed to answer to Chicago. So they were going back and forth about that. And one day, one phone call, Joe Augusto said, well, you know, they're backing out now. The people he had lined up were some of the principals at the Tropicana because I think what he was promising them was Teamster money if they wanted to go buy the Stardust yeah. Teamster loan. He said, you know, they're backing out now and tough. He says, what do you mean? He said, they got scared. There were some headlines about how, I think it was the Aladdin and, and how uh, some people from Detroit were getting money out of there and how they're all going to jail. And, yeah. and, and so they're back and they don't want anything to do with it. they're scared. And tough, he says, well, are they scared of going to jail? <laughs> like he was like, you know, what's wrong with yeah. them? So that's kind of the time sequence there. Right. So it's after, not headline. The Detroit deal was on its way down, and the Kansas City deal was on its way up. So this would have been like early 70s, like 73, 4, something like that. Yeah, I think that's when that actually happened. Yeah, I remember that. It's about the time I was being born. Not that long after, Hoffa came up missing, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's crazy. But Detroit yeah. was the first, first one that got pinched for all that. Yeah. Well, there was they, some situation, I can't remember the details. Somebody got arrested and they found it, a tab in his coat pocket where it had the Tropicana, the Stardust, and they, they saw, like, what, what the hell is this? Yeah, that, that goes way back. See, really, Lansky and some uh, Mo Greenbaum and Bugsy Siegel, they really got the whole thing started. And Frank Costello, when he was shot. That was it. It was Frank Costello. Yeah. They did find that. We had the daily take and had the Stardust name on it. And I understand the numbers kind of charted yeah. up with what was real. So they had been doing that for a while. And, you know, when Atlantic City went in, see, they, they had an agreement with Chicago and everybody out west that they would take Atlantic City and Chicago and whoever they brought in, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Kansas City, would take Las Vegas. Yeah. So that kind of broke it up. Detroit was always with St. Louis and they were always kind of in the middle there, but they were really beholden back to or connected closer to New York. Yeah, because they were married. They had some marriages between fathers and sons and daughters to New York. I think it was for Fachi, if I remember. I think you're right. I, I can't remember. There's, anyways, it, relatives of mine, I, I don't know them that well. They're just, you know, distant cousins or whatever. But yeah, that's crazy. So ultimately, Kansas City gets pinched and, and what happens? How does it go down? Well, it's pretty complicated, but, uh, you know, they, they start building up all this information, building up all this information, and you got to take it down at some time. You got wiretaps in Chicago. You got, if we had like 15 or 20 at one time in Kansas City, uh, you got them in Chicago, Milwaukee, Cleveland, Las Vegas. You've got people on the phone that are, you know, giving you enough information. And finally, they decide to take it down when they know that the courier for Nick Savella for Kansas City is going to bring what they call sandwiches back from the Tropicana. So it'd have solid evidence and it would connect it back up to some wiretaps they had. Guy comes in, we're all set in all those cities for all the target places where they've had wiretaps and, and where people have talked about there might be some kind of records or some kind of evidence. So on that February the 14th, Valentine's Day of, was it 1980, I think, we're all set. And when Carl Caruso, who has a junket, so he legitimately goes back and forth to Las Vegas all the time. He's a courier calling the singer. And so he comes in. When he lands, Bill Owsley and my boss, Larry Wisher, and a couple other agents, they confront him when he gets off the plane and start you know, pulling him aside, say, okay, let's see your briefcase. Nothing in the briefcase. 
So Bill Ousley says, you know, I thought they'd have this money hidden somewhere. It's going to be two months worth. It turned out it was $80,000. He said he reached in one side of his coat pocket. He took out $40,000, reached in the other inside pocket, took out $40,000 and laid it down. It's like, all right, but that's it. Man, we got it. A lot of money back then. Yeah. So then, you know, after that, the Bureau, they just have to start interviewing people. And, you know, they, they got records out of everybody's houses and looking at their money. And so Did anybody get a lot of time? Oh, yeah. They did Rico on them. So our guys got like 20 years, 15, 20 years. And I and Chicago did the same thing. Milwaukee kind of skated on it. Not that bad, Bill, if you think about it. Yeah. I did 13, you know what I'm saying? Because I was making millions of dollars. Yeah, but they were old men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a different story if you had a million dollars in a coffee can, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and and they were about 65 to 75 years old, too, or 80. <laughs> that, yeah, it's over. It's a life sentence at that point. 15 years, that's life. It was basically life. Tuffy's the only one that came back out. We could go all night on this. Very fascinating. Man, listen, so plug where they can find your website, where they can find your podcast. Plug yourself. <laughs> all right. Well, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. Everything I've got uh, is under Gangland Wire, practically, except the book. The podcast is Gangland Wire. I've got a Facebook group, Gangland Wire. It's got uh, 50, a little over 50,000 people in there. We have great discussions on that. A lot of real deal guys are on there making comments and talking about the neighborhood that people will post pictures of. And, and uh, then I've got uh, the book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that's a mouthful, I understand. And what I did with that book is kind of interesting, I think. I was able, we, we filed a motion with the federal court and got all the Title III information, all the wiretaps, copies of all the cassettes that they gathered for this investigation. And myself and a couple of agents went, got them, and then I digitalized them. And so I took really good excerpts out of them. And, and in my book, I tell the story of the investigation through the wiretaps. And then if you buy the Kindle version, I took that part of the wiretap, the audio, and put it on a website that if you tap on the title of the transcript, tap on that, it'll go right to that other website and you can hear the actual audio conversation. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's really next level. Yeah, that's cool. Well done. So I, like that. I developed the Kansas City Mob Tour app. And what else did I have I done? I don't know. I, I guess that's about all. I've <laughs> So I've been doing it, I think, seven years now. Well, you're good at what you do. God bless you. you. have a really interesting story from being a police officer and thank you for your service there to becoming a prosecutor at 54 years old or a lawyer. And just, a lawyer, oh, yeah. Back, yeah. A lawyer. I mean, that's just, it's impressive what you did. And then you did all this research and, you know, did all this stuff, man, to come out the other side unscathed on the good side. <laughs> so God bless you, man. We appreciate you. And we're going to have to have you on another day sometime for another discussion. I'm sure there's a lot we could get into. We could pick any topic. Yeah, about, really. Along that and talk on for hours. But uh, for now, everybody, go out and buy his book. Go to his website, go to his podcast, check out what he does. Thanks, Gary. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Bill, anything you'd like to add? Just as always, check our show notes. If you want to find out about the authors, I'll have all their links and make it real easy. All right. God bless. We'll see you next week back here on 1010 The King, our thing. <laughs>